And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live from the great American Southwest and the land of enchantment, north of Albuquerque, New Mexico. We have a very interesting, I was going to use the word difficult, but I don't think we ought to, you know, prejudice the jury. How's that for a a neat segue? Uh, We're going to try to talk about tonight in a civil and a higher level fashion than probably 99.9% of what you've seen in the last week of commentary on the Trump indictment about something which has never happened in the history of the United States. It's happened all over the world in, in major and minor democracies. What we've been seeing this week in terms of the 45th president of the United States is not unusual. Uh, Public officials are uh, uh, arraigned, are indicted, go through trials all the time. I'm going to be talking tonight with some very interesting people. Uh, We're gonna have Marvin Jones with us. Marvin, as you know, is our resident citizen historian with a special emphasis on the founders, the framers, the workings behind the scenes around the writing of the Constitution of the United States way back 200 and almost 247 years ago now. In a couple of months in July, we will come up on the 247th year. We're going to have Rick Levine with us because ironically, Rick kind of pinpointed what we're going to talk about tonight in a very interesting way. Rick, of course, is a... uh, global, uh, world-class, hyperdimensional astrologer. And uh, when we get a little closer, I will introduce with more specifics. We've got Georgia Lambert with us, who is our resident metaphysician, because part of what I want to talk about is the reason for the existence of the United States itself. I'm seeing a whole cacophony of events that appear on the surface to be kind of brilliantly and clearly differentiated and not connected. And what I'd like to try to do tonight is to draw some lines, some as it's very uh, apropos now in the mainstream media to talk about Venn diagrams. Well, we're going to talk about the Venn diagram of the creation of the United States and this unique time in planetary and solar system history in which these events, these uh, Uh, you know, obvious sequential activities that appear separate are in fact taking place. And we're going to ask the question, are they in fact at a deeper level connected? Um, What I'd like to do is to uh, begin tonight with uh, uh, Rick. But before we do that, I want to call your attention to a feature, which if you're new to the other side of midnight, you may not be... uh, uh, aware of what we have here. We call uh, this section Radio with Pictures. And what we do is we have a section of the website where you can find images or links or videos or background reference material. So when we're off the air and you're listening uh, uh, to Club 19.5, you can look through these documents, through these links, through, uh, like tomorrow night we'll have a couple images. And then you can gain, of course, background information that goes beyond the limits of the three hours 
that we have been or will have been at the end of this morning discussing these. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce uh, our players. I think we're missing Marvin. Keith, am I correct? We're missing Marvin? And I'm not hearing anything. I know why. There we are. Open the mic. I know, I know, I know, I know. Everybody's here. Excellent. Oh, Marvin is here. Excellent. Excellent. Barbara is also here. There's Barbara. Hi. You were missed. Okay, so let me try to do this in some logical fashion, okay? Um, Marvin is a very interesting guy. He is, uh, a, as I said, a citizen historian, and he has been involved with heavy research into the founders for a very long time. Um When President Kennedy offered a history lesson in real time, way back when, Marvin watched the press conferences, State of the Union addresses and other speeches, but JFK's decision to go to the moon on the basis of 15 minutes worth of spaceflight experience, that was the famed Alan Shepard up and down ballistic flight back in 1961, uh, captured Marvin's imagination, and in fact, it still does. He has ever since been reading, listening to historians, journalists, politicians, digging into ancient tomes, and it's become a real habit, a habit which he says cannot be broken. When it comes to Marvin's family, uh, they've served in every branch of the armed forces, although though predominantly army, as was he. Because American involvement in Vietnam was winding down, Marvin was sent to what was then West Germany, And upon return to the States, he finished what he began overseas at the University of Maryland University College, receiving a bachelor's degree in government. Uh, Rick Levine, as I said a moment ago, is uh, a very interesting guy. He is a professional astrologer since uh, 1976, which would make it um, an even-numbered year after the founding of the United States. He has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. He also has all kinds of other credits, so if you want to go and read about any of these people, just go to the bio section of The Other Side of Midnight, on the guest page and just scroll on down. Uh, Georgia Lambert, as I said a moment ago, is our kind of resident metaphysician. She spent over 10 years with Manley Hall there in Los Angeles at a very, very interesting location. Um, And it was at that, with that group, um, which was, I'm trying to remember the name of the group. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm, I'm I'm having a brain whatever. Um, philosophical research. Society. The philosophical research society. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. So she is well backgrounded in some of the more interesting things we're going to talk about tonight. Barbara Honiger is with us. Barbara uh, served as a high-level government uh, advisor in positions including the White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy. Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was senior military affairs journalist at the prestigious Naval Postgraduate School, 
the premier science, technology, and national security affairs research university of the Department of Defense. More recently, she's been heavily involved with the 9-11 Inquiry, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth, and uh, is in fact co-chairman of the board. And I'm missing a whole bunch of stuff. She's got the first degree in parapsychology from uh, JFK University there in Northern California. And there's a whole bunch more. Again, if you want all the specifics and details, just go to the bio section of each of our guests on the other side of midnight. I'd like to start with you, Ron, because really you're kind of you're kind of at fault for why, you know, we're here. You said several weeks ago, I think it was in the second um, of Things to Come broadcast we did maybe a couple of months ago now, that there was going to be a major set of events occurring sometime around the end of March, beginning of April, if I'm if I'm correct in my memory. Well, in the last week alone, sticking only to the political vein of the founding of the United States, which is our kind of theme tonight, we've had in the last few days alone the first indictment of a former president of the United States on criminal charges. We've had the election in a very uh, red state-oriented Supreme Court. In the state of Wisconsin, we have a dramatic break, which occurred on Tuesday with the election of a liberal uh, judge to the bench for the first time in, I believe, 15 years. And, of course, that appointment is now going to influence both debates in abortion, in voting rights, in gerrymandering. It's a very, very non-trivial development in the national political scene. Because, of course, one of the uh, uh, things we're going to talk about tonight is the ex-45th president is declared now to be running again for the Republican nomination to be president of the United States in 2024. And because gerrymandering is a major part of the legislative process in too many states, and it has been said typically that there was a blue wall between the election of a Republican president and a Democratic president represented by Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. With this recent election in Wisconsin, um, all of the assessments of uh, uh, President Trump's previous election obviously now are up for grabs, and anything can happen. It's in basketball parlance, having just finished March Madness. Um, it's kind of like a jump ball. Um, nothing is written, nothing is foreordained, and at some level, I'm going to get into this a little later when I you know, can talk to my guests individually, I almost have a feeling that we're going through some kind of testing time for the robust nature of the American Republic. And I'll get into more specifics and some of the things that I see as indicators as we move through the morning. If it were not enough to have those three major political i'm sorry two major political developments there also was this week a third one taking place in memphis tennessee where a few days ago there was a very tragic um shooting another mass shooting three nine-year-old kids and three adults attached to the school the covenant school there in memphis 
uh, were shot by an intruder wielding three weapons, two of which uh, were high-powered assault rifle type of weapons. And it turns out that this was a mental patient. She had, despite her family's wishes and her doctors, she had somehow managed to purchase seven weapons, and they were at her home when the police obviously began the checking on uh, who the shooter was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the wake of that mass tragedy in Memphis, there were there was a contingent, a huge contingent of high school and grammar school and college students who turned out en masse to basically petition the state government of the state of Tennessee for redress of grievances, in this case, for something in legislation which would limit, curtail, and hopefully uh, eliminate uh, such mass shootings, at least in Tennessee, in the future. And it was in the process of those demonstrations that three of the legislative members from the Democratic side joined with the demonstrators and for a few minutes uh, went to the floor of the legislature of the of the House of Representatives there in Tennessee and actually did protest on the floor, for which they were brought up on charges, the three legislative members on the Democratic side, and after a very bizarre kind of quasi-kangaroo court trial, which did not have the trappings of any real inquiry into guilt or innocence of any laws or rules or decorum, two of the legislators were ejected from the body and the one was saved by literally one vote. And what's very striking is, of course, the legislators who were summarily ejected turned out to be young black men, two men named Justin, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. And Ms. Johnson, who was a older white woman, uh, kept her seat by one vote. And of course, everyone is looking at this as a extraordinary, blatant example, which I never thought I would live to see in the 21st century, of Southern racism. And that has been part of the discussion ever since these events went down. All of which brings us to the ultimate irony of the week. This is the anniversary, the anniversary week on April 4th of the assassination of um, MLK. And it was just so astonishing that these events would basically converge in a way that uh, is very hard to understand if one sees these things as kind of separate events. In fact, they are not. I believe, and I'm going to argue tonight, that there is a very definite linkage between the anniversary of Martin Luther King's death and a number of the developments we're seeing in disparate parts of the nation in that same time period. Um, There's something else which has occurred. Ever since the uh, overthrow of Roe v. Wade, which of course goes to the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, women have been extraordinarily apprehensive of another suit filed in, in Texas with a Texas district judge, which would have the effect of limiting uh, and prescribing 
and eliminating the availability of a medical uh, abortion pill uh, on the open market. Um, and that, of course, came to a head also in this remarkable political week of major new developments on a range of critical cutting-edge political issues. And this, this drug, which is kind of the um, uh, after, you know, uh, after hours or after morning or early morning pill, as it's called in some places, is now the objective of two dueling federal rulings because simultaneous with the Texas judge declaring that the FDA has seven days to the claim of the litigants in his case that the, that the uh, drug is not safe, even though it's been on the market in the U.S. for 20-plus years, and in the market in Europe for over 40, going now almost on 50 years, another federal judge also filed a ruling within hours in, from the state of Washington, basically mandating under law that the FDA cannot forbid sale of this drug nationwide, even in states that are, uh, um, you know, blue states, so-called, where abortion is legal and still permitted. <clears throat> That's all happened in this one week. And last but not least, um, attention and now turn to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who it turns out from a brilliant and very deep investigative piece in ProPublica, which is my item number six, that Clarence Thomas has been secretly accepting extraordinarily high-priced gifts and luxury trips and uh, resort lodgings for like the last 20 years and since 2004 has not reported per federal law either the existence or the dollar amount of these extraordinary gifts. One, for example, if you looked at the whole package, which was airfare and then the resort and then the luxury yacht all involved, would have cost him about half a million dollars, and he did not report it. Under normal ethics, such extraordinary largesse to nine, one of nine people sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States, if there is supposed to be accountability of what our legislators, what our executive and our judicial branch are doing, and the influences that come in from the general public, those disclosures are supposed to be de rigueur. All of which, Rick, took place in the time frame where you said rather delicately something major could be coming. Rick? I'm here. Go ahead. Well, okay. That's uh, a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's rare from an astrological perspective to see so much change in a short period of time. And let me just back up a half a step for those people who are listening who are not familiar with real astrology versus uh, you know, sun sign or horoscope astrology like in, in newspapers, what an astrologer looks at is the geometric relationship 
between the orbiting planets based upon uh, geometry, sacred geometry, if you will, and also looks at these planets. Um, and, I, and when I say planets, I mean the, the known planets, but all objects moving around in the sky in the sense of the Greek word planeta means a wanderer. And so anything that moves in the sky is fair game for astrologers to watch. Now, when planets change signs, and there are 12 signs in astrology based upon dividing a circle or a cycle into quarters and thirds, and then four times three quarters and thirds turn out to be 12. And when planets change signs, meaning their geometry to the starting point, which is a mathematical point that's derived um, every year by the vernal equinox, and astrologers refer to that point as zero degrees of Aries. When planets change signs, they're making angles to this very important point in the sky, because as we know, a circle has neither a beginning nor end, but we arbitrarily use um, the first moment of spring um, or the sun's movement into the sign of Aries um, as the beginning of the cycle. So the rule of thumb in astrology is that the slower moving the planet, um, the stronger and more powerful uh, the tangential energy is, the energy is as it changes signs. And for example... Wait, 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 run that by me again because you just triggered something very interesting. Cause the planets move in cycles they form um, actually what Newton referred to as tangential gravity. It's not something, it's, a, it's the, the, the force of the 90-degree um, angle formed by the movement of the planet around the center point around the sun. Right. And so as, as the planets are moving around in circles, um, they, they form a, a, a force, if you will. And... When a planet changes signs, um, the faster moving planets, and again, when I use the word planet, I'm including anything um, that appears to move, including the sun and the moon and, and, and Pluto, which um, astronomers have dismissed as a planet, but we astrologers do not care about that, those definitions. And so when we look at, for example, the planet Saturn, which takes about 29 and a half years to move through the zodiac to make a complete orbit, apparently, um, around the sun from Earth's point of view. That means that the planet Saturn takes about two and a half years to move through each sign. And when Saturn moves into a new sign, it always brings with it new, new issues. But that happens every two and a half years. When we look at the slowest moving of the planets that astrologers use regularly, that would be Pluto which is um, a 248-year cycle. And that means because of Pluto's very um, elliptical orbit, Pluto moves faster when it's closer to the sun and slower, as all planets do, when it's farther away from the sun. And right now it's taking Pluto, um, uh, well, it took Pluto 15 years to move through the last sign that it was in, Capricorn, we'll have more to say about that in a moment, and Pluto in March uh, entered a new sign into the sign of Aquarius. In March, Saturn entered a new sign also. It moved uh, from Aquarius into Pisces. 
for both of these changes to happen within a couple of weeks of one another um, is very significant for a number of reasons. And although there's more astrology that I did and, um, and could lean on, the fact that Saturn and Pluto both changed signs um, in March was the first clue that most astrologers have had. And what I'm talking about is something that most educated astrologers um, were, was ta were talking about back in January, February, you know, and even the beginning of March of this year. And that is because Saturn and Pluto are um, both changed signs last month in March, um, Saturn toward the middle of the month and uh, Pluto toward the very end of the month. Everyone that I know who um, who does who studies astrology for real um, has held the same position, and that is that by the end of March and beginning of April, it would be a new ballgame. There would be new territory. <laughs> well, and, you guys called it, but were you able to get anywhere near the specifics? I mean, the litany I read <clears throat> is like an eruption at all levels of at a fundamental force a morality of right versus wrong yeah yes and and um you know specific it's been said by modern astrologers that astrology is not specifically predictive but is archetypally predictive and from that standpoint yes astrologers have been talking about um very similar things on an archetypal or energetic level um, let's just stick with Pluto for a moment as an example. Before I, I talk about that, there's one additional thing that is very significant, and that has to do with something that astrologers call planetary returns. Ah. Now, planetary returns or the return of an orbiting uh, um, object to, uh, to a point where it was is something that we on planet Earth celebrate all the time. Every time someone celebrates their birthday, mm -hmm. from an astrological point of view, this is a solar return. It's when the sun appears to be back in the same place in the sky as it was on our birthday. Because as we know, from Earth's point of view, although our calendars are slightly sloppy, every year within a day on either side, the sun looks like it's in the same place as it was exactly one year ago because really it's the earth that's gone around the sun in a year now when a planet returns to where it was um at some major event like our birth this is always the end and beginning um it's like the alpha omega it's like the turning point um it's like the energy in effect of a new moon where one cycle ends and then the next lunar cycle begins well it turns out that um, in this year, and I say this year, this is a little bit wider than just March, but in 2022, 23, 24, and I'll explain why it's a spread over a few years, the planet Pluto, which NASA tells us is a 248-year cycle, actually is at its point of return. It's like a super birthday. The United States of America is experiencing its Pluto return, we celebrate its solar return every year on July 4th. Well, that's going to happen next year because it's 248 and this is 247. Uh, the... uh, 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 uh. 
No. That is correct, except for this one little annoying factor, and that is the um, precession, what's called the, the precession of the equinox, which actually makes the planets appear um, separately to move backward um, um, one degree every 72 years. Right. And so when you go to map the actual planet Pluto, it was last year when Pluto actually looks like it returned to where it was and we work on this visual phenomenon. Oh. That's, why I'm, that's why I'm giving this a two-year spread, because the, the, uh, the tropical, and that is the, um, the way of measuring that takes the procession into consideration, that occurred last year and the beginning of this year, um, but from a sidereal, meaning from an actual uh, mapping against the fixed stars, it doesn't occur for another year and a half. Ah, but, okay, but, hold but, on, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour. My okay. guest this morning is Rick Levine, among many, and we are at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. I kind of thought it was appropriate that we maybe play an oldie tonight in honor of uh, Martin Luther King and the others. This is Abraham, Martin, and John. That is Anybody here see my old friend John? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems that they die young. I just look around The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, this is really a remarkable week, and I want to get to Rick uh, in a moment, but I did forget one person in my run-up because I was kind of mixing and matching. Robert Morningstar, who, as you all know, is a uh, absolutely steadfast uh, devotee and follower of the ex-president, has also joined us, and I'm sure he will have some very interesting comments when we get to that part of the morning. So, Rick, back to you. Yes. So, um, so the reason why um, last month when, when I was on the show, I had said that the end of March and beginning of April, by the time we got to, um, to, to April, uh, that we would be in a different, a different territory. Now, the thing is that the movement of Pluto from Capricorn to Aquarius is incredibly interesting um, with what's going on, um, what you described, Richard, and some other things that are also part of this same uh, energetic switch. And that is that Pluto archetypally, it's the Lord of the underworld. It's about, it's everything that's not on the surface, everything that's unconscious. It's everything that's underground. Interestingly, um, historically, um, massive wealth was found underground. It wasn't about the currency, you know, of a particular state. It was the person who owned the copper mine, the gold mine, the silver mine, the diamond mine, uh, the tin mine. These, th- this was wh- this was wealth. And it turns out that the word plutocracy, which our government in the United States is, is basically a government by the very wealthy. And the power of these people, like Pluto, is often underground or or hidden. It's not Ah. what appears to be on the surface. Now, Pluto's job as it moves through the zodiac, as it exists in each and any one of our charts, um, Pluto's job is, well, on the surface, it's death and rebirth. What it really is about is deconstruction, reconstruction. Um, when Nietzsche in Thus Spoke Zarathustra um, wrote about what he called the overman, which was misinterpreted certainly by um, Hitler and the, um, and the overmensch of, of Germany, um, is this idea that there is, that man is not an endpoint of, uh, or humanity is not the endpoint of, of evolution. It's a middle point between something that it was and something that it's becoming. And as kind of kind of sounds Nietzschean, man, it, no, it is. That, man it is, is on the way from something primitive to Superman. Exactly, it's a Nietzschean concept, and the idea that Pluto's job, in in a way, it's the planet of nihilism, meaning that it takes those things that are the most important, uh, 
the highest on the mountain, and it deconstructs them so that they reconstruct at the bottom and then work their way back up. Um, the idea in the you know um, in the in the early 20th century, the philosophical idea of radical theology, God is dead, is a good example of this Plutonic concept um, of nihilism of the most important values basically deconstructing and then and then being reconstructed. So where Pluto is by sign denotes where Pluto is doing its work at deconstruction reconstruction. And for the last 15, 16 years, Pluto has been moving through the sign of Capricorn, which is about um, the structures that are um, the most stable. Uh, in other words, Capricorn as a sign of the zodiac archetypally is connected with, oh, banking and government um, and the stability of like, like roads and things of that sort that well, wait, are... Wait, 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 wait. Did I forget to mention the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown? Yes, you did. $250 billion. It's not in this last week. It was within a window of another couple of weeks. So this whole yes. March, I mean, March Madness this year was very appropriately named. Yeah, <laughs> and and actually that, that meltdown of the Silicon um, Valley Bank um, happened within a day of Pluto moving um, from from Capricorn into Aquarius. And interesting, wow. when, Pluto, when Pluto moved from Sagittarius into Capricorn, that was right at the time of the 2008 real estate um, um, meltdown. Um, you know, so the, it's so the banking system is certainly part of this, but it's more than that. What is the most fundamental structure of the United States? It's the Constitution. And we've seen, as Pluto moves through Capricorn, we've seen those things that we thought were the most stable in government, especially in the um, tenure of uh, 45. Um, we've seen those things that we thought were immutable and stable all be messed with. Everything that was structurally the way it was all began to change. And as Pluto moves into Aquarius, um, what is Aquarius about? Aquarius is about social structure. And, and the most important thing to understand here is that when Pluto last moved from Capricorn to Aquarius, that was in the years between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution um, and, in fact, the French Revolution. Those all, the French Revolution and the Constitution of the United States um, Pluto has made the transition from Capricorn into Aquarius, but it was like the Declaration of Independence and what was going on in the years prior was the beginning of the deconstruction of the stability of the society that became the United States. Now, the important thing to understand here is that when a planet returns to where it was when, when it was born, and make no mistake about it, the United States was born like any other country and the United States was born, um, some people say, most people say, with the Declaration of Independence. But really, on a deeper level, it was born um, after the American Revolutionary War, um, or in England, they call it the War Against England, the King George War, um, that, um, that in fact, the other birth of the United States is the Constitution. Um, and so these two points have to do with what we're going through now as Pluto returns to where it was. 
and this idea of a second American revolution, um, whether it become armed or whether it's strictly in the realm of information, um, is something that will play out more. Now, there's one other thing aside from the things that you mentioned that went down in March and the bank failure, which is probably a bigger deal than we're seeing it on the surface right now. But the other thing is the coming into um, public consciousness um, of artificial intelligence. It's like exploded. It's been around, um, you know, but all of a sudden it's in our face. And Pluto, as it moves into Aquarius, will thrust us into the future and give us, in effect, a new order and a new awareness because Aquarius is the sign of technology. It's the sign of futuristic. It's the sign of, of the um, highest levels of consciousness that are not about what I think or what you, Richard, think. It's about the consciousness of, of the network. Here we're talking about humanity or, or perhaps even the World Wide Web if we want to look at it in, in that fashion. But the point here is that Pluto is going to, over the next 20 years, because it's slowing down and it will remain in Aquarius for 20 years, will create a complete deconstruction and reconstruction of those things that have to do with humanity. And it's my um, intention, Richard, that, um, that one of the things that we'll, we will see is that by the time Pluto is finished moving through Aquarius, and we've seen the inklings of this, which you also left off, and that is the whole concept of what, we, that what falls under um, what we call disclosure, that by, as Pluto moves through Aquarius, we will learn who we are, where we came from, and what the big picture is that right now is completely, as many of us know, hidden from us. So this is the background of what it is that's changed. But there's one other thing I want to mention before I give up the mic, and I could go on about this for a long time, <laughs> but I won't. And that other thing is that because all the planets, all the real planets, because of their orbits, what's called retrograde motion, um, they don't really go backwards, but because of the Earth's orbit within their, or, you know, um, compared to their orbit, um, all the quote-unquote real planets, Mercury, um, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, all appear to go backward. What that means is that although in March, Pluto moved into Aquarius, by June, Pluto will have re retrograded and be back into those last degrees of Capricorn. It will move back into Aquarius early 2024, back into Capricorn again for a couple of months, and it won't be till the end of 2024 when Pluto is actually really seated in Aquarius. So we are in a very dynamic and unstable and changing period of time as Pluto makes this transition. And what that means is that Pluto ain't done with its deconstruction of all the structures that I talked about earlier, um, including the government, including elections, including the stability of what we think is up there or out there in the U.S. government, and also the banking system. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure where to go. I'll tell you what, I, I want to call on Robert because yeah, Robert yeah, – I'll, I'll, I want to sit back and let others talk. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to call on Robert. Mr. Morningstar, you are with us, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, Robert is what we call a civilian intelligence analyst. He has 
all kinds of talents and, and expertise ranging from imaging to forensic analysis to historical research. Um, he's a member of the maritime generation. <laughs> and and has yes. been an avid Trump supporter. I want from you as a Trump supporter the big picture you see in terms of the ex-president's historic first indictment in 247 years? Oh, I'll be happy to give you that. First of all, I'd like to say I'm glad the show is this week and not last week because last week it would have all been uh, speculation and uh, premature expostulation. Well, as a like to say, as, as we always say, you know, God works in mysterious ways, yes, he his does. wonders to he, perform. So, And the reason I couldn't make it last week is that tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, I'm going to broadcast the most important interview that I have ever done in my life. When I interview the man who shot John F. Kennedy from the grassy knoll and killed him with a grievous head wound. That's why I couldn't be here last week. So tomorrow at 3 o'clock on revolution.radio. Studio A, you can hear me interview the man who's making a live on-the-air confession because he's near the end of his life. He does not have much time to live. He's had a conversion. And uh, it is appropriate that tonight, Saturday, Holy Saturday, before Easter Sunday, it is a, a night in Christendom that's called the harrowing of hell. This is the night when Jesus descended into hell and opened up the gates and freed the souls that had been there, locked up since the beginning of time. All the prophets, all the judges, all the kings, all the good people had been locked up in purgatory limbo and the others waiting for the unpearly gates. So I'd like to dedicate this uh, dissertation to Pro Christo Rege. That's the motto of my high school power memorial academy. That said, I would like to say I'm very happy to see President Trump indicted because by breaking that, it opens the avenue for indicting other. Oh, what an interesting concept, Robert, because you and I, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. so tired of all these pundits say, oh, this is the most terrible time in history. Mm -hmm. This is a tragedy. This is it. I think of it as a high point in the 247 year evolution of the Constitution. Absolutely. Which, as Absolutely. a unique document, guarantees to Donald Trump like it is supposed to guarantee to every other citizen. And we know that's not true, primarily because of money. It guarantees him the right to a fair and open trial of all the assembled evidence against mm -hmm. him in the indictment. And right. I am looking forward intensely to the American people and by metonymy, you know, anybody in the world that wants to know how democracy should really function. Because as we go through this process and we know from the get-go that the biggest impediment to a fair trial and, and appropriate jurisprudence is the inequality of the state and most ordinary defendants because of money, because of funding, and public defenders are so overwhelmed and the budgets for investigation, et cetera. So when you are indicted for a crime in the United States, if you do not have funds, you do not get appropriate 
justice. Now, the right. degree, so, the degree yeah. to which that imbalance exists is completely eliminated in this tour de force case where a former president is proving by the Constitution that no man or woman is above the law. And as we go through the process, which probably will take in the Manhattan case until the next election in 2024, the Manhattan case will probably not reach the courtroom. It will show us a roadmap for how the American legal system is performing and areas where it could certainly be performing better. So it's interesting, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Robert. You and I have such divergent points of view on Trump, except in this case, we're both in agreement. This is the best thing that could have happened to the country. Let me tell you why I think it's a good thing. First of all, let me address the charges. I'm reading this political article that you uh well, I, I, well hang on robert 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 i don't want to get into the specifics because they're oh, almost, no, 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 they're no, almost you irrelevant you can't do that they're Richard. almost irrelevant I they're wanted, false they're falsehoods in that political that is article. your opinion and that's no, the it's trial. not my opinion that's the laws of new york state no it they're isn't. saying that those 34 charges are felonies they are all misdemeanors they are all the misdemeanors, and misdemeanors have unless a they are unless they are committed unless they are committed. We can't to, talk over each other. Come on, unless they okay. are committed in service to another crime, which is a felony, and then they are not felonies. They are misdemeanors. There's a two-year statute of limitation on misdemeanors. There's a five-year statute of limitation on felonies. Bragg has no jurisdiction Do over federal you understand law. Why and the, the Federal Election Commission Robert, has please. No crime Robert, Robert, we're not here to argue the specific. That's what a trial is for. You want to be nebulous? What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Specifics is everything. Not when it comes to the overarching idea of what this indictment of a former president and the result of the rest of the process will do to our society. It doesn't matter what he's accused of. He's innocent till proven, till proven guilty. Now, let me tell you why, I think, why I'm happy that this protocol has been broken, because we have had many criminal presidents, and by breaking this protocol or this precedent, those other criminal presidents can be brought to trial, including George W. Bush for the lies of 9-11, and for the falsehood that got us into the second Iraq war and Barack Obama for establishing ISIS. Barack Obama made ISIS a reality. He ordered the Department of Defense to supply arms in Syria to create a Salafist principality. Robert, we're not going, we're not going to go through indictments tonight on the show. I want to have a bigger picture. I agree with you. There are okay. several presidents in our prior history who, yes. should, who should come under the careful scrutiny of the That's legal right. process. That's why I'm rejoicing. That but we're not going happened. to solve that tonight. All right. I, 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 given that we now have your position, and in fact, I agree with it, I want to move yeah. on to Marvin. Marvin, are, are you with us? Okay. Very good. I, I am here, Richard. Excellent. 
the reason I called Marvin up and I said, I want you to look at the founders, the Constitution, and I want you to come up with some rationale for back during the Nixon years, when Nixon controlled the Justice Department, they were able to create a document out of what's called the Office of Legal Counsel, where a sitting president cannot, even if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue and they die, according to this legal theory, which is not in the Constitution, but is a legal interpretation from the Nixon White House, they cannot be indicted according to this legal theory. In which case, if a president, this president, the former president, any president commits an extraordinary, visibly heinous criminal act, according to this OLEC memo, they are supposed to sit back, stand by, stand back, and do nothing. And I find this almost criminally insane. So, Marvin, what did the founders envision in the way of the president is in fact no more or less than any other American under the law? Well, you actually answered that uh, with laying out how that uh, Office of Legal Counsel memorandum is just that it it is a policy guideline for the department of justice that is all it is it is not in the uh, the constitution and a very distinguished uh, constitutional uh, uh, professor uh, lawrence pride has uh, spoken about about that uh, saying that uh, that policy guidelines should be done away with. There is absolutely no reason why a citizen who at a particular time happens to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue uh, should be treated uh, any differently in regard to the law. One thing uh, in getting uh, prepared for tonight's program that stood out, out, out to me again was how, if nothing else, the framers were definitely opposed to monarchy. And, and one of the attributes of, of, of monarchy is, is, is the idea that the king can do no wrong. That is something that's not made up by me. It is part of, uh, of, of English law, something that uh, Blackstone goes into in uh, the commentaries on, on the laws of England. So that uh, OLC memorandum is to emphasize, again, nothing more than a policy guideline for the Department of Justice, and it should be uh, – torn up and, and put in the trash can. Do we have any idea on what legal theory this uh, Office of Legal Counsel memo was created? Because looking at it in hindsight, and given the documented efforts by the Trump administration, particularly Bill Barr, to manipulate the Constitution and the Department of Justice to basically aid and abet Trump in whatever he wanted to do, it seems to me that Nixon invisibly 
had some kind of influence and he was working, you know, the the uh, the refs kind of like Trump has done or did through Barr, but Trump but uh, Nixon did it first and that's how we came up with a me- with a memo which on the face of it makes no sense at all. I'll tell you why. Why do we have a vice president? If a president is indicted mm-hmm. for some criminal act, wouldn't that be an appropriate time to bring in the vice president? And while the president goes to take care of legal problems, the vice president, who is kind of like the spare tire, who's kind of like the guy mm-hmm. that's supposed to be there to carry on policy, he just moves into the chair and he assumes you know, the presidency until the president is either in, you know, convicted or exonerated from whatever he was indicted for. I never understood the legal foundation for the OLC memo from the get-go. I agree with you. And uh, something that I kick my, myself over is that when all of this was going on uh, during the, the Nixon administration and uh, Gerald Ford decided to uh, issue the, the, the pardon, I, I at that time had started uh, uh, doing some research. But the day that Ford issued the pardon was September 9th, uh, 1974. And that day sticks in my mind because that that was the day that I was uh, taking the uh, oath to uphold the Constitution. Ah. And so at that point, I, I was preoccupied. You were a little with, bit with distracted. Doing, uh, <laughs> yes, just, just a tad. Okay, we're coming up to the top of the hour, which, of course, is a hard break. Why doesn't everybody kind of take a pause? Thank you, Marvin. Thank you, Robert and Rick. And we will move on with this. Uh, I kind of thought it was appropriate, again, musically, to background our theme tonight. Um, This is an oldie but a goodie. And I'll bet some of you actually remember it in honor of Rick Levine's uh, expose on how the physics of these alignments actually seem to work. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. You ready? Right. Let's make this the one. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, April 8th, just the uh, day before Easter. We have a very special Easter program tomorrow night. David Sarita is my primary guest, and George is going to be uh, uh, checking in in the third hour. We have some extraordinary information. Actually, I should say that it's David who has this extraordinary information related to incarnation and reincarnation and communication from beyond death in the solar system. And it's been communicated by her departed wife, Crystal, and it appears to map onto the extraordinary Dante vision of multiple heavens beyond the earth. And it gets us into the whole conversation. If we do live, as I think the numbers are, now beginning to show us in some kind of designer solar system in the way of his experience, David's experience, is this trying to elucidate a larger version of that truth? Okay, Marvin, back to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you look at the reasons for the uh, Nixon uh, Department of Justice memo? I mean, did they pull it out of whole cloth? Was it just kind of, uh, you know, made up? I mean, or was it a deliberate effort to sidetrack an indictment at that time? President of the United States. Well, that I I, um, I really do not have much on what was their their rationale. Just in quotation mark, yes, <laughs> their 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 reasoning uh, for it. Because, as I said before, in getting prepared for uh, 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 this. Uh, program, it just stood out to me 
uh, it was just one of those almost like a neon sign that uh, the individual who happens to uh, hold the office of the presidency is still a, a citizen. Excuse me. May I give you two details about that Nixon situation? Yeah, by all means. Right. Sure, sure. One of them was his complicity in the Watergate break-in. <clears throat> and the second one is the reason for the Watergate break-in, which is they thought that the Democrats had secret files on the John F. Kennedy assassination in which Nixon, the CIA, the FBI, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Department of Defense were all involved. So he was covering his tail, and that's why he appointed Gerald Ford, a Warren commissioner, to be the overseer. That's all I have to say. Thank Mm. you. So you're saying, if I can summarize, Nixon, through his own Justice Department, arranged to not to be held in a public trial where all of these other threads and tentacles and cross currents and agendas could have come out. Absolutely. So I would like to point you to my item number one, which is Dark Journalists, his broadcast tonight. Brilliant. Covers everything that we're talking about, the Trump indictment, the reasons for it, and the connection to the John F. Kennedy assassination. What we're watching is a bloodless assassination. That's what they're trying to do. It's really messy to kill a president, as we've seen. So they're no, trying wait, to wait, 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 wait. They carried it out before with Kennedy. What do you mean it's no, messy? I'm it's really a messy situation. And the 60 years of turmoil and doubt and anguish and madness that is sweeping the country is all tied to the JFK assassination. That is the biggest lie in the history of the United States and a concatenation of lies and murders and other crimes have had to be installed to prop up that major lie, including the assassination of Martin Luther King by the FBI. They paid for it, killed by a CIA shooter named Frank Strauser, who had a size 14 shoe. And... The police department in Memphis, Dr. Martin Luther King, did not die from the gunshot wound on the terrace. He was killed in the hospital by, the, by a Ku Klux Klan doctor named Dr. Bland Breen. And I urge everyone to read Dr. William Pepper's The Assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And I'll tell you this, I worked with Dr. Pepper, and we succeeded in getting a trial, a civil trial in Memphis, of James Earl Ray, and that jury exonerated him. Even though he had to finish his life in a federal prison, he was innocent. And it's the FBI who paid $50,000 to set him up. And there were two Judas goats who set him up, Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Billy Kay. Because on the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson became the leader of the civil rights movement but he was working for the FBI all that time. And the black people know it. I was shocked when I discovered this. I was hesitant to say it to my black friends. And then I said, do you know who set him up? And this lady, a Navy, Navy lady said to me, does his initials go like JJ? I said, yes. I said, do you know that? She said, everybody knows that. But everybody was afraid to speak. So 
for Dr. Martin Luther King, for Robert Kennedy, for John Kennedy. Tonight is the night when the truth is bursting out on the other side of midnight and tomorrow at 3 o'clock on revolution.radio. You can hear the rest of it. Thank you. That's all I want to say for now. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Robert. Uh, Marvin, I want to go back to the Constitution because if, as Robert has stated, and I strongly suspect there will be evidence if anybody really looks to support this, if Nixon was able to diddle his own uh, Department of Justice so they created a memo that basically gave him immunity, what could they possibly have based it on in the founding fathers and the framers' idea of what a president was supposed to be? Well, I'm sorry to uh, say this, but Richard, let's, let us look at some other things that have been uh, done. And I know I'm going to probably step on some toes here, but let us look at some other things that have been asserted uh, to be constitutional, to- uh, totally false. I, I believe the, the last time you had me on the program, we touched briefly upon the, the Second Amendment. Yes. And uh, we end up uh, uh, referring to former uh, Chief Justice Warren Berger, who had been appointed by President Nixon after uh, uh, Berger had had left the court. He was on the McNeil-Lair report, and that's when he made that statement about how the whole business of of the Second Amendment, he called it a fraud, referring to the position of of the, the NRA. And so for me, I find it remarkable that the uh, idea that the Second Amendment means one thing when actually it concerns national security. Now, I'm using that phrase specifically, national security, because when Alexander Hamilton in number 29 of the Federalist Papers, he defines what a well-regulated militia is, he specifically talks about uh, to be used in regard to national security. And to follow up on, on, on that, the uh, proposal that he put forth in the, in the Federalist Papers, well, it was hardly a big surprise that when the Constitution was approved, uh, Washington uh, became president. Uh, Hamilton's uh, uh, Remarks in the Federalist uh, Papers turned out to be uh, taken up by the first Secretary of War, Henry Knox, who also served with Washington during the war, like Hamilton. And uh, it was was a report about the militia, which which is now called the National Guard since 1903. So I just use that example because it, it is the most outstanding example that everybody can immediately uh, identify with in terms of how something is asserted. And I maintain that this whole idea that, oh, well, uh, not indict uh, uh, this guy because of the memo, which again, oh, wait, 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 is just wait, wait. a then guideline. I, then, I, then I come back to my really dumb, stupid question, which is, 
Why do we have a vice president? What is different? No, I, I, well, what, what, what is yes, different? I agree. I agree with you absolutely on that. So that, how that did is perfect example? How did Nixon's Justice Department wiggle out of the idea that the president is no different than any other citizen, and if he commits a crime, he can be indicted and tried while he's in office? I mean, to well, me again. Uh, that, that, that seems to be the overwhelming question, because if we had gotten Nixon for those crimes against the state, of which there was a litany, would current history have taken place? Was that a real decision point in American history, and we took the right path as opposed to the left path, and thereby changed history irrevocably until 2023. I think that Ford's uh, a pardon of, of Nixon really sealed the, the, the deal because that, that was uh, something akin to saying, oh, we know this man did all these things because of the the Watergate Special Prosecution uh, accusing Force did a very excellent job of laying out the, the case against him. But it, it, it was akin to uh, 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 giving uh, a man uh, immunity. And so it has carried on uh, uh, since then. Hmm. Well, you know the old cliche, justice delayed is justice denied. And, uh, right. I mean, I am extraordinarily interested in what the process is going to reveal in terms of the ex-president's indictment on, on these charges. By the way, one, one particular detail that's important, yes, there is a statute of limitations in Manhattan, but it is contravened, it turns out, if the defendant is no longer resident in the state or has not been in the state for many years, president, the ex-president, left New York and went to Florida uh, shortly after the election, changed his, his legal residence. And so that is the way that the district attorney can uh, bring the indictment because the statute of limitations in New York is still enforced. <laughs> I, don't think so. I think there's a lot of malarkey. Go look at the law. Just look at the law. It's black letter law. I'll make you laugh. Go look at the law, Robert. Go. Wait. You you have plenty of time. Google and tell me I if I'm right year. or wrong. Okay. I have a year for the trial. All right. Uh, I'd, I'd like to bring in Barbara because Barbara, um, what is your perspective on this week that was, kind of starting with the indictment and ending with what's going on uh, in Texas, in in uh, Tennessee, in Wisconsin. In Washington State, I mean, this is really. There used to be a TV show called "That Was the Week That Was." Well, this is the week that was, and I did not casually attribute it to March Madness just because I had nothing better to do. What are your thoughts? Hi, Richard. I first want to say that I love the music you're playing on this show. I've been dancing to it at the break. So I really appreciate. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got lots of comments on what this gone before, as you can imagine. Okay, first off, I just want a correction in my bio. I am the chairman of the Lawyers Committee. Oh, you graduated. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so my, my first comment is 
uh, in your litany of all of the incredible precedent-breaking news uh, in so-called March Madness during March, you forgot the one that I think is the most important. Of course. And that is that you go to my items, um, and I know you know about this, but you just forgot. And that is on uh, March 18th and 19th, on the front page of the New York Times, my book, October Surprise, on the high treason of George H.W. Bush and William Casey in the Reagan-Bush senior campaign was given phenomenal validation. Now, um, number, let's see, number three in my items, if people go to them, uh, the New York Times confirms the October surprise theft of the 1980 election, high treason from President Carter. Okay, uh, and the title of that front page New York Times article, which thanks to Robert Morningstar, I had to call him up and say, Robert, you've got to go out in the morning and get me the New York edition of the New York Times. It's on the front page. I've been vindicated. And he did, and I received it. The title of that article by uh, Peter Baker, who is the senior White House correspondent for the New York Times, paper of record of the United States, is titled A Four-Decade Secret, One-Man's Story of Sabotaging Carter's Re-Election. So anyway, without going into the details of the October surprise, my main point here is it is wonderful news that Trump has been indicted. The main reason is the fact that he's been indicted breaks the taboo, as both you and Robert agreed, which is a clear fact, that it's no longer taboo for at least a former president of the United States to be brought to the bar, to be brought to the bar of justice in the courts of the United States. Before, they could have, but they weren't. And so regardless of what happens in this particular trial, and I think Trump's going to be indicted for a lot of heavier things coming up shortly, Regardless of what happens in any of those trials, the taboo has been shattered. And that's what matters. Now, my next comment is, you've been asking the question about this OLC memo, this Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel memo that um, has been going on ever since since the Nixon days. Yeah, 1974. Uh, Since 1974. And it, it was clearly purely politics. Like all of the rest of this is, it's it's partisan politics, and uh, I agree completely. the The historical facts are that the whole purpose of it was to protect uh, the president Nixon at the time from being brought before the bar of justice when the other side could bring out all of these facts. And I disagree that justice wasn't served at all in that because he was forced to resign, and he was forced to resign because Alexander Haig went to him and said, "Look." Um, President Nixon, if you don't resign, you are. We've done, you know, we've got the numbers here, and he showed them to him. You will be impeached, and you will be removed regardless. So, well, I, know, I, I think it was more than Haig. I think Goldwater went to the White House on that trip. Oh, yeah, lots of, there yeah, were a number lots. of Republicans, senior Republicans, who basically said, Dick, it's time to get out of Dodge. Yeah. The most important one was Kissinger. That was the yeah, probably the most important one with Kissinger. So continuing here, I just wanted to point out that it was just pure politics, pure high-level geopolitics, as it always is. But one thing you didn't mention, Richard, about the OLC memo of the Department of Justice, um, 
is that it only applies to a president while still serving in office. Right. You just failed to mention that. I know you know that. Once a president is out of office or before a president is in office, it's fair game. He's just a citizen. He's just a citizen, by the way, once he's been elected. Technically, during the transition period, he's just a citizen. That's what happened during the period of the October surprise from just before the election of 1980 and October of 1980 until Inauguration Day 1981 when Reagan and Bush Sr. Were, took the uh, oath of office and our 52 hostages were released immediately after they swore, were sworn into office. Um, that was the, the transition period, and they committed treason far worse than anything that, is, that Trump is being charged with here in this indictment. So the door has been swung open, as Robert, I believe it was Robert said. I totally agree. We can now go after Bush. Uh, unfortunately, Bush Sr. is no longer alive, and William Casey is no longer alive for the October surprise. But um, George W. Bush is still alive. We can go after him for the, for the complicity in 9-11. After all, I'm chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. We have a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. We're about to bring it back to a judge in New York City to get a special criminal grand jury to look at the proof uh, of the uh, government complicity uh, in the, the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11. So it, it opens up the whole 9-11 case. It opens up the case against uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. I also want to point out as to the mentality of the OLC memo, and this is more true, I know that some people on your show don't like to hear it, but it's a fact, that the Republicans, more than the Democrats, when they're in power, they, they are much more of the uh, absolutist um, monarchist frame of mind. And in fact, as a fact of history, in the Iran-Contra hearings, when the Iran-Contra hearings were over, and the October surprise, subject of my book that was just validated on the front page of the New York Times on March 18th and 19th of this year, just this past month, when the Iran-Contra report was written, there was a majority report, report by the Democrats and a minority report by the Republicans. It's all about politics, all of it. And in the minority report, the main author was none other than Dick Cheney, who was then mm. a representative. And the, the major claim of the minority report, the Republican report, was that, I'm sorry, Democrats, um, there can't be anything wrong with this alleged Iran-Contra story, which itself was a cover story for the October surprise. But putting that aside, uh, the Republicans in their minority report, basically top signature by Dick Cheney, representative, then Representative Dick Cheney of Wyoming, said the President of the United States is the law. The President cannot break the law while he is in office. And a President of the United States not only has, but should have, quote, this is a quote, monarchical powers, unquote. Good grief. So we, fought the, we fought the American Revolution against the king. I thought. The monarchy. Do you have a reference for where Cheney actually put that in writing or said Absolutely. it? Okay. Absolutely. It's, it's the front page of the Minority Report. Okay, a couple of other things I wanted to mention just to um, – uh, okay, the other big one is, I loved it when you played the song, is it Abraham Martin and John? Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, 
you, you forgot something else really important. And uh, even though it didn't happen in March, it just happened a couple of two, three days ago. But Robert Kennedy Jr. has filed for president with the Federal Election Commission. Yeah, I saw that. Well, I don't know how far his candidacy is going to go. Cause of course, well, we don't either, but he's filed. Well, there's a lot of people that filed and not many people are going to survive to the final. You know, I, I don't know whether I, I think it's a good idea that, that Kennedy, because I think splitting forces before an election when you have Trump on the other side is not a good idea. Well, no, I understand. I'm just letting you know, you were talking about, you know, MLK, RFK, JFK. I think we should just mention that RFK Jr. has just filed to run in 2024. Okay. And um, I do want to point out, Robert mentioned that very, very important that everybody uh, listen to his show, which I had a major part in producing, co-producing with him. You might want to mention that. Um, yes, thank you, Barbara. Let yeah, me just... you're welcome. You're... But it's three. It's at three o'clock. He said it's at three o'clock tomorrow on Easter. That's three p.m. Eastern. So where I am in California, that's noon tomorrow. It's live. So you've got to listen live, and you go to Revolution Dot Radio. And then when that opens up, you select, isn't that correct, Robert, Studio A? Studio A tomorrow night. Yeah, and it's a two-hour program. It is earth-shatteringly historic. It's an interview with James Files, who is the shooter of the final headshot of JFK with the mercury-filled bullet. Yes. And it's it's an incredible experience for me, as I told Mr. Files. I always wondered what it would be like to meet the man who killed President Kennedy. <laughs> in the 1990s, I used to think about it and I'd say, I'd kill that guy. But times have changed, people have changed. It's a time for reconciliation. And the saying is, John 8:32, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If it doesn't freak you out first. Well, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we've we've only got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour. I I want you to go into what the New York Times story is all about because there there are key major political players. And if we don't get through the final details, we'll come back to this after the bottom of the hour. But there is a former Texas lieutenant governor involved who apparently has sat on this secret for decades. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, after the bottom of the hour, I, if it, I'm going to answer your question here, but I would like to just talk about the warring federal uh, appeals court rulings on the abortion pill case. Oh, yes, right by up. all means, by all means. Yeah, but, but that'll be after the bottom of the hour. Um, so to answer your question, if people go to my items, Barbara items number three, um, if you click on that, um, that will open up an actual file that you can read of the entire uh, front page New York Times article. It came out online um, in the New York Times online edition on March 18th. And the front page story, physical paper, March 19th. That was the Sunday paper front page. That's the biggest audience you have. And the bottom line is that after all this time, it turns out that the former lieutenant governor of Texas, Ben Barnes, Uh, has now acknowledged, with all kinds of evidence which is in the article, um, has acknowledged that he and the uh, former Texas governor, John Connolly, who was in the limousine with JFK and got shot along with him, um, that John Connolly and former Texas governor 
Ben Barnes, who is the, the uh, deathbed confessional witness here, um, that they uh, were sent by William Casey, who was the campaign manager for Reagan and Bush Sr. in, 19, in October 1980 and prior to that, beginning in July, June and July, uh, sent, him, sent them both, and they went together on a tour of um, top leaders in the world to get the um, – to get the word to the Ayatollah Khomeini not to release the hostages to Carter. This, it, it couldn't be a higher level valid, validation of my book, which was the very first. It certainly could not be. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. Everybody hold places where they are. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, just go to the uh, bio section of the other side of midnight and you will see them all, Barbara and Robert and Rick and Georgia, and see, my memory is no no more short-term memory. I can remember things from 1961. I can't remember what I had for lunch today. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. What we're going to be doing in the next uh, you know half of the show is talking about the fact that were it not for a gerrymandered legal process in Nixon's Department of Justice, Nixon could have, based on the evidence accrued by the Watergate Committee, could have and should have been indicted for the crimes committed during the whole Watergate affair and the ensuing cover-ups. By this twist of manipulated history, that did not occur. Instead, a... um, Vice President Agnew was indicted, forced to resign. Nixon then chose a new Vice President, Gerald Ford, who ultimately, after Nixon's resignation, gave him a pass, gave him a full presidential pardon for everything he had done or might have done. The pardon, when you read it, is really very broad. And again, I agree with both uh, Robert and Barbara that the reason for this overt political manipulation was to prevent the president then from having to testify in open court about all kinds of other things that would have fallen out of the legal closet. Are we going to see a repeat in the 21st century? Maybe yes, maybe no. To be determined. We shall be right back. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, April 8th, the night before Easter, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And as I said last uh, hour, we're going to have a very interesting conversation with David Sarita tomorrow night, apropos of Easter and the theme of resurrection, because David has some very interesting and very specific information which has come to him from his departed wife, Crystal, who died very tragically on August 9th of last year. On every ninth day of every succeeding month, David and his two daughters have received an extraordinary message from his departed wife, Crystal, and how it all fits together into the larger idea of a designer solar system is part of tomorrow night's very appropriate Easter conversation. So back to tonight and my prolific and very interesting and very three-dimensional meaning they can think vertically and horizontally and dimensionally in time. And so, Barbara, I would like you to come back and talk about the events that happened around the transition from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan because of uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes now. We know the process was totally rigged. Of course it was rigged. Yeah, the interesting thing about, you know, again, if people go to my items, I just want to um, let people know what they are. Um, Number one, uh, what you should know about item number one, it says October Surprise History File. Um, when you click on that, you have to let it download to your computer, at least I do, before you can open it up large enough to read it. If you click on the uh, the thumbnail, it doesn't open up. But if you download it, then it'll open up. You can read it. Um, that's a, that's a, a good summary of what I've done Uh Since my book, October Surprise, the very first ever was published, um, item number three is the New York Times article itself that we've already discussed. Um, My book is item number four, which is still available on Amazon. Number five is an interview, the first interview I did live in the studio of C-SPAN on the October Surprise. Mm. And number six is the interview I just did right after the New York Times, the recent March 18th, 19th, New York Times article came out. I did that show with Robert, and um, the uh, audio of that is uh, is number six. So I just wanted people to know about that. So um, going back to just a thumbnail sketch, because I don't want to go into the details, really, of the October surprise. I have other more relevant comments to make here um, shortly. But Excuse me, Barbara, I have a question for you. It's an yeah. important question. Mm-hmm. Do you believe, as I do, that George H.W. Bush and William Casey did this high treason behind Ronald Reagan's back? Or do you think that Ronald Reagan knew about it? 
Oh, that's a good question. I don't have any proof that Reagan knew about it. Neither we do, do I. We do I, don't my, would, my, I don't think he would have approved of it. So I well, think that it's just a speech just approved, but I, I, I actually think that they protected him. You know, it's a, it's right, a plausible, plausible, deniability. plausible deniability. That's what right. you do at this Thanks. high level of politics. Um, so I, I don't hold Reagan completely irresponsible for it, but was he a, a central player? No, he was not. Um, so, so anyway, to answer Richard's question, just in a nutshell, um, this article in the New York Times that just came out March 18th and 19th, front page, it, what it proves in spades is that William Casey, the campaign manager of Reagan and Bush Sr., was orchestrating John Connolly and former Texas Governor Lieutenant General Ben Barnes, Barnes, who was his protege. Connolly was the, uh, his mentor. Um, and uh, William Casey sent them uh, to, the, to the highest levels of the government in Europe and the Middle East. Um, to get the message through to the Ayatollah Khomeini that they wanted to cut a deal. And um, according to this article by, by Barnes's confession and acknowledgement, this started in the summer of 1980, which is when the right after uh, Reagan and Bush uh, were actually um, uh, actually became the nominees at the Republican convention. Uh, where I where I ran the speech writing and policy office for, for Reagan there. And so um, this article simply proves that they were trying at the very highest level. And as soon as Connolly and Ben Barnes came back from all of these, these high-level meetings to try to get the presidents of these countries all over the world to get to Khomeini for them so that there could be some plausible deniability if it ever leaked out by anybody um, that um, that the message got through to Khomeini that that a channel wanted to be set up my book Gary Six's book Bob Perry's book Ari Ben-Menashe's book from inside the Israeli IDF it's all been proven that that Khomeini then took the bait and these negotiations, in fact, happened. And as a result of them, Khomeini was going to release the hostages. Um, he, he, he was going to, he was considering whether to release the hostages to Carter. That, that negotiation was ongoing in late October of 1980. And the Reagan-Bush campaign message got through um, that don't release it to Carter because you're going to get a better deal. You're going to get at least $5 billion worth of arms if you just wait for us to get into office. But for us to get into office, we know from our, from our focus groups that you cannot release the hostages to Carter between the 18th and the 25th of October. And in fact, that's when the big October surprise meetings happened in Madrid and Paris and other places. So the deal was cut and then and then there was a the moment of panic when the word came that Khomeini was planning to release the hostages the moment he learned that Carter had lost the election. And so they had to send Kissinger to say, oh, no, 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 wait until we're actually in office. Another three or so months extending the period of capture of 52 Americans, including some of them who were then in even prison uh, and being tortured at that same time. 
So I seem to remember Barbara. Indicted for what Trump's being indicted for is peanuts compared to this. Well, but there are other indictments kind of waiting, you know, circling Idlewild. So the jury yes. is still out. But yeah, this first indictment. What I find kind of interesting is that it begins the process at the beginning, because if Trump is is liable for what he is accused of in the indictment, that it was part of a coherent plan to keep all bad stories suppressed, the so-called catch and kill from the publisher of the National Enquirer, then it also rises to the level of conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're going to get is a tour de force of all of the evidence for and against on both sides in a rigorous process that I guarantee you everybody who has thought law was boring, at some point they're going to tune in on some network or some website and follow this trial. So this is going to be the largest public education of the American people on the basis of the constitutional system that I can imagine. Because now we have some... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, the big picture here is that uh, the the claim is that Trump was trying to, uh, you know, affect an election in an illegal way. Well, that's exactly what the October surprise treason was, times a thousand or a million, okay? So I don't believe that it's a coincidence the timing of the front page New York Times article confirming the October surprise. It was a shot across the bow of the Republicans. Ah, okay. It was a shot across the bow of the Republicans. Published on March 19th. uh, March 18th online and March... 18th online, March 19th in the hard copy. So I just wanted to mention that. Also, back to the OLC memo. Maybe I'll take another three minutes here. Good plan. Back to the okay. Well, back to the OLC memo, because you've, you've put a lot of focus on that. Um, the real reason, to me, the big question is, it's pretty obvious why uh, the Nixon DOJ put it in place. The big, the big surprise is that it has never been revoked. And it's never been revoked up until the current moment that we're speaking because all presidents break the law. Every single one of them. They get by with what they can get by with in order to stay in power and to get into power. And the October surprise is the perfect example of that. Um, So that's the real reason for the OLC memo. Um, Another important point about the OLC memo is you said, well, what's the point of having a vice president? Um, The Constitution is very explicit that the only way to remove a president is through impeachment while he's in office. And so that is the major argument behind the OLC memo policy. And then there's also the 25th Amendment. You You don't just put a vice president in. The question is, who puts the vice president in? The answer is the 25th Amendment, but it's a very complicated process, and under the 25th Amendment, there are two ways to do it. It's the vice president and the cabinet having to agree, certain certain number of members of the cabinet, or it's the vice president and the top members of the House and the Senate. Now, it's very hard to come to that. It's hard to get those people to agree. So the vice president basically has to uh, commit mutiny. 
okay? And um, so the Constitution has made it the 25th Amendment and the Constitution proper itself with the impeachment being the only way to actually remove a sitting president, even one who's, as you said, you know, shot somebody as Trump said in downtown Fifth Avenue in broad daylight with all the TV cameras rolling. Um, it still requires the 25th Amendment or an impeachment to remove a president. You don't just put a vice president in easily. Um, okay, so those are what I wanted to mention. And the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, you had raised one of the happens. Oh, huge, uh, huge. Huge, really huge is, is uh, on the one hand, um, this win by the Democratic candidate for the Supreme Court in, uh, that that was Wisconsin, wasn't it, or was it Michigan? Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin. Um, every time that medical freedom and the right not to be pregnant is the ultimate example of medical freedom, okay? People need to understand that on the Republican side. Now, in the Reagan White House, I was in charge of Reagan's so-called ERA alternative. I was the top federal official for women's rights and gender equality in the federal government. And in that position, I was vociferously pro-choice. I was hated for it by most of the flacks inside the White House. But my boss, who was the chief domestic policy, policy advisor, Dr. Martin Anderson to Reagan, in the West Wing, as I was, was also vociferously pro-choice, as was his wife, who was the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. And at that time, a very large percentage of the Republican uh, so-called establishment uh, of the party. What changed, what changed was when they realized that they had to get the evangelical Christian vote or they would never again win an election. And I was told that to my face in those words by Dr. Anderson, who was Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor. So um, this, this win um, by the Democratic, it was an 11-point win. That's huge, huge. Well, so, normally in Wisconsin, I saw some pundits and analysts talking before Given that the state is so 50-50 blue and red, uh, the, the gerrymandering notwithstanding, they thought that a landslide would be, like in other elections in the, at the midterms, like by 1%. Yeah. The idea that she won by 11% is astounding given uh, Wisconsin's recent history. Yeah. May and I look say at something you. about Wisconsin? May sure. I say something sure. about Wisconsin? Yes, uh, the Supreme Court justice uh, was elected by an 11-point margin, but they had a special election for the Senate, and the Republicans now have a supermajority in Wisconsin, which I think is a really weird situation. And a really bad idea. Go ahead, Barbara. It's a really weird situation, but the bottom line is federal law is what our Supreme Court says it is. And state law is what the Supreme Court in that state says it is. So unless Barbary versus Madison is overturned, which ain't going to happen, um, <laughs> the law is what the courts say it is. Okay, that's number one. And then I do want to just quickly comment on, uh, you had mentioned as one of the big things in March that happened, um, turning point things, these warring federal appeals court rulings on the abortion Case. Do you remember any time when we've had two dueling, opposing rulings simultaneously on an issue? 
Well, simultaneously or near simultaneously, it's pretty rare. But I know the reason it happened with the one in in Washington State. And that is because the Supreme Court itself, and I know this for a fact, because our 9-11, our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry recently, um, last August, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court itself uh, on one of our big 9-11 cases. And um, we learned the hard way that the Supreme Court only accepts less than 1% of all cases that are presented to them to accept in any term. So, and the Supreme Court policy, it's their written policy, you can read it on their Supreme Court webpage. They have, um, they have certain criteria for cases that they almost always take or should take. And one of them is when there are clashing rulings at the appeals court mm. level in the different so the um well this has not yet reached the appeals court these are two district judges federal judges and it's going to go to the appeals process next and apparently the biden administration the doj has filed or is about to file another dissenting um a brief which is really going to complicate things yeah yeah that's true um it's not to the appeals court level yet but it will be and you have to go up through the appeals court and the different circuits to get to the Supreme Court. So just like at the circuit courts, it's likely that the appeals court will also be warring rulings or contradicting rulings. And then you go to the Supreme Court to hopefully maybe if they take the case less than one percent a year, uh, you know, per term, uh, they would almost certainly take this case. But the big thing, the big picture is that whenever the people are allowed to vote directly, like they did in Kansas, which is a screamingly red state otherwise. Yep. <laughs> um, the, the, the vast, the, the significant majority of the population voted not to, um, not to change their constitution to, out, to uh, outlaw abortion. Well, that's a kind of a bellwether for things to come because the people who mistakenly thought that the, you know, Dobbs decision the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you know, uh, several months ago would basically die down before the midterms. They were wrong. And for those and for those that think it's going to die down before 2024, they're wrong. So, no, in fact, there was a huge New York Times article just a couple of days ago um, with a headline almost verbatim to the effect that the Democrats have decided that they're going to make the the. Um, what I call medical freedom, medical free choice freedom, um, a special case of which is pro-choice on the so-called abortion issue, um, that they're going to make that front and center on every single Democratic race, whether the actual uh, office for which the Democratic candidates are running has anything directly to do with, with, um, with the issue or not. Interesting. Very interesting. So that's my, that's my two cents for now. Okay. Perfect timing. Georgia, you're on deck. Georgia Lambert, who was our resident metaphysician, when I talked to her earlier in the week, I said, I don't want to do one of these shows where, you know, is Trump guilty? Is he innocent? Is it legal? Is it? I want to do a bigger picture. And then I looked at all of these events kind of striking at the idea of democracy. Democracy is now resident in discussion, private and public, at every level, that each of these decisions is somehow part of the ultimate big 
three-dimensional picture for American citizens limiting this discussion to only this country. So, Georgia, where do you want to take your first bite of this amazing apple? <laughs> okay. Uh, I do have some comments about this, but before I get to them, uh, let me just throw in something that occurred to me listening to the conversation thus far. And that is that, you know, we're talking about patterns in consciousness, monarch, uh, patterns of monarchy uh, being replaced by newer patterns and so on and so forth. But when we look at some of those old patterns, when you go back and look at ancient Britain, for instance, there's a, a, a very deep-seated pattern of the sacrificed king that ritually and cyclically the king who was at one with the land would be sacrificed for the good of the land. There is a caveat to that, which is the idea of substitution. The king can always choose a substitute for that sacrifice. And as Barbara was talking uh, and mentioned Agnew, uh, what struck me is Agnew was Nixon's sacrifice. He took the fall for the pattern that Nixon would have or could have played out. Because of the whole bribery stuff with him basically taking, you know, uh, briefcases full of cash in the vice president's office. Exactly. Exactly. So that was just an interesting little pattern there. Also, uh, so much of this that is being discussed tonight kind of hit the fan uh, right around the Ides of March, ah. another uh, another interesting uh, uh, date point in our history. Um, of course, I'm coming at this from a, a whole different facet of the diamond, and I, I'd like to uh, kind of dovetail back into some of what Rick started us off with uh, this evening. And that is that when we grow, we don't grow in a smooth trajectory. We grow in spurts. There's leaps ahead, and then there's periods of digestion. And then there's leaps ahead, and then there's periods of digestion and embodiment. And as I've said before on, on this show, that traditionally, uh, the Democrats have outpictured the leaping ahead, particularly in social um, and civil rights issues, uh, pushing the uh, civilization into new territory. Um, traditionally, the Republicans have been the plateau that allows us to gather ourselves together and embody and uh, digest uh, before the next spurt. But what we're seeing right now is uh, not traditional roles. We're seeing uh, an extreme uh, pulling aside and pulling apart just like a cell before a cell divides. You know, if you remember from your fifth grade high school science. Good old mitosis. Yeah. You, you see the protoplasm pull to the poles before the division, right? And in the division, the old doesn't die, but has a new cycle of life. We're at one of those points as a society that we are faced with the opportunity of moving into this next age with a whole new set of uh, ideologies and 
perceptions and the widening of what we think life is and what our identity is and um, the way that we move into it is being decided now as humanity is given these tremendous opportunities for choice as to what kind of people we want to be and what direction we want to go in. You know, it's funny when I was talking with Rick and Rick, you can jump in at any time with some thoughts on, you know, just general how you see things. Uh, when we were talking about the banking crisis problem in the last couple of three weeks in Silicon Valley, there is a procedure now in the law that was watered down by Republicans during the early years of the Trump administration having to do with stress tests on banks to see whether they could weather depositors suddenly wanting all their money and you know credit in, is stored in several different bizarre ways that only money managers can begin to understand. I mean, that's how complex financial economics has become in the United States, along with the, the whole legal system. But what, what occurred to me is that it's almost like Georgia, given what we've experienced over the last six, seven years with the election of Trump and the bifurcation of consciousness and the 30% that, you know, right or wrong, he's our guy, doesn't matter. And then the rest of the country having incredibly conflicted opinions, depending upon who you talk to. It's almost like the constitutional republic has been facing either deliberately or inadvertently some kind of extraordinary stress test, which tells me, and we're going to get to this when we come back uh, after the uh, top of the hour, that maybe what we've gone through is only a prelude, a kind of uh, uh, out-of-town New Haven for the stresses on our republic that are yet to come. What do you think? Exactly. And this choice point in terms of our politics has to do with do we follow mental ideals or do we follow emotional personalities? Very interesting indeed. Okay, everybody hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, just go to the website and you will find them readily available. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this uh, Saturday night, now Sunday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment. The other side of midnight, rolling on through the night as we discuss the really momentous developments only in the political and legal area. If we broaden the lens, if we look beyond to the things that occurred this week, which could, in fact, have a profound and determinative and directive effect on the continued existence and evolution of the United States, NASA, on Monday, named the four Artemis II astronauts who are going to go into lunar orbit within a year, maybe sooner, and will be able to, from a first-person perspective, tell us yes or no on the existence of these extraordinary ancient lunar domes. And that's a whole other conversation, but it did also, the naming of those four astronauts, it also happened this week. Georgia? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many things can happen in one week? I guess we're finding Well, out. you know, my, my grandmother's great line used to be, time is God's invention to keep everything from happening at once. <laughs> well, we seem to be in one of those times, that's yep. for sure. Yep, yep. So, uh, again, I, w- I would stress that, that this is a time of choice. Remember, things begin as thoughts. They take on the power of the emotions, and that moves them into physicality. So we are at this moment creating the future that we're going to move into by the direction of our thought. Okay. Hello? Can I make- yeah, by all, by all means, Barbara. Yeah, this is a free-for-all. Yeah, I just wanted to, in, in response to that, I just wanted to make very explicit for everybody that, yes, choice, that's what elections and the fundamental principle of elections is choice, that the people speak usually by a simple majority. But what happened with Trump for the first time was a complete and total rejection of the, that principle. And that's, that's the real issue that is up in all of these um, cases that are still pending, especially. Uh, by the way, I also wanted to say that I believe that the reason that the, um, the, um, 
the Bragg case in Manhattan was brought first is because chronologically it's the earliest in terms of his actions or inactions. Um, it, it is a case about what he did before he was president. Uh, and then the, um, the other, some of the other cases are about what he did as president and another one after president. I wish that that case, the Bragg case, weren't the first one brought. It's a weak case. I would like to say in response to what Robert said, um, and I'm not saying that I know this for sure, but I am going to quote the New York Times just yesterday or the day before. It was the analysis by their legal correspondent that um, they looked into the claim by Republicans. Did we lose you? Barbara? Hello, hello. Huh. Barbara? She's still here and she's not, uh, we're not hearing her. She lost her mic. Okay. This is not a good thing. Pointing because I really wanted to hear what she well, said. Well, yeah, we all do. Uh, I saw, I saw, I saw what the New York Times said, and uh, basically it said that there was a pretty flawed uh, case. And the other thing is, he didn't really cite a crime. And then when he asked, when he was asked about it, he said, "New York State law does not require me to do that." So we have to really explore this whole. Uh, well, I, I, look, uh, from what I've looked at, and, and again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I do play one on TV sometimes. Huh. Uh, the reason for that was strategic legalistics between the pro and anti-Trump legal defenders. In other words, the district attorney's office doesn't want to give the game away until under uh, uh, discovery, they are forced to commit that last part of the arts, that last part of the puzzle and i think they admitted they deliberately did not go the last mile so that they put the opposition trump's legal team off balance apparently i think that's where he torpedoed his own case because new york state law decrees that you have to at the time of the arraignment you have to make the charges known well but but, but again you're thinking that this da is an idiot he obviously if it's in the law I don't agree at all. You don't get to be. You don't get. You don't get to be a district. You don't get to be. Would you please stop talking over me? You don't get to be. You don't get to be a district attorney, certainly of Manhattan, if you're an idiot. So there's got to be other things. Hang on. I don't want the Soros thing is such a red herring. If New we York can, if we can stick to specifics that are admitted by both sides. Well, listen to John, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Turley of uh, George Washington University. Yeah, who happens to be bought and paid for by the radical right. So and Just like Bragg is bought and paid for by Soros. No, he's so. not. Soros <laughs> didn't come near Bragg. Oh, they have on. never he met. A, uh, Soros has not donated a dime I'm back. Ah, you're back. Yes, my apologies. I lost the charge on my computer for a moment there. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to point out that I don't know if this is correct, but the New York Times stated about two days ago in an article on the subject 
that these um, charges, uh, the, uh, the allegations, are for the lowest level of felony in Manhattan. They are not just misdemeanors. Now, that is a contrary claim to what I've heard every other place, but at least it was made by the New York Times. Okay, and um, the New York Times covered up the, the October surprise for... No, it didn't. No, it didn't, Robert. It just revealed it. <laughs> it just revealed it this year after yeah, covering it up right. since 1980. Look, we, we know you're pro-Trump, and you know I'm not, so... Yeah, let's not get lost in the weeds. That's um, okay, and I want to make clear that I'm an independent. I am. Okay, Barbara, when, when your computer died, you were in the middle of an incredibly interesting thought. Please continue. Uh, well, I've actually stated it. What I was about to say when my computer lost its charge <laughs> was that the New York Times um, stated that the charges in that the counts or, or the, the alleged acts or inacts or omissions by Trump are actually the lowest level of felony themselves. Now, I don't know if that's true. I haven't looked into it, but the New York Times did claim it. You can buy that or not as you like. I would like to agree with you, Richard, though, that certainly Bragg is no idiot. Bragg obviously has a strategy, and he would never have brought this if he didn't believe there was a reasonable chance of success. Well, that's my assessment, that there are cards in this game which are not on the table. And he admitted to it in his little press conference that when Robert rightly points out that they don't get to the, okay, what does this mean? Why is this a, why is this a federal felony in essence? And Bragg is not with, revealing that yet as part of political strategy because a legal proceeding – in addition to being legal, meaning grounded in law, is a game. It's strategy. It's it's uh, you know it's it's bluffing the opposition. It's side fence. It's it's it, it, in other words, it's a real contest. And in this time, we have two components, two contestants who are equally matched, and so we might actually get to the truth by the explication of this extraordinary process, legal process, under the Constitution, which is why I am so looking forward. The the fundamental core of our legal system is the jury, a jury of one's peers in Manhattan, and we're going to see what they say. Yeah. I'd like to say that a couple of days after the indictment was uh, submitted, the Federal Election Commission stated that they had explored this charge and they found no crime in it. So add that to the equation. Which will come out in the trial. Yeah, but they're not jurors. That's just their opinion. That's just the Federal Election Commission, and Bragg is citing a Federal Election Commission crime. No, he's citing a state crime in New York State. So, again, there's so much going back and forth, back and forth. I want to, on the specifics, just kind of hold counsel and watch the process. And we need to make sure, Robert, the process is scrupulously fair. And the main way that happens in our society is through money. Trump is not deficient in weaponry 
in this contest and neither is Bragg. And so we're going to get a contest of equals and, and the, the, the evidence, the evidence itself is going to be riveting because it will open the door to, among other things, what happened with Reagan and Carter, because that also was a campaign crime. Exactly. And it's one that's proven. Yep. Okay. Georgia lost power. Georgia's now back. Georgia, welcome. Hi. Everything went dark. The whole block went dark there for a moment. (laughs) Boy, talk about not just just my house. The whole the whole block. So happens here a lot. If I disappear, you'll know you'll know where I am. Somewhere out in the darkness. Okay. So where were we when you were, you know, absurdly yanked away from us? Um, I I wasn't speaking. It was it, it Barbara was on, and then she disappeared, and then I disappeared right after her. So maybe it's a California thing. Not maybe. <laughs> it could be. Okay, from the larger perspective, in my in my idea that we're undergoing some kind of stress test before the real you know, you know what hits the rotating kitchen appliance? What are some of the elements? Because again, this week alone, look at all the incredible hot button issues just legally were all punctuated this week. Did we lose her? Uh, there you who are. You, who are you speaking to? Oh, I'm speaking to you. Oh. From the larger perspective that this is kind of uh, New Haven, the big test is yet to come. Yeah, uh, I think Rick can speak to this. I was just thinking, Rick, do you want to talk to to that? Maybe he's just listening. Mr. Levine. Well, I think think things are going to get more polarized and much more active before they smooth out. because for whatever reason, humanity has not been pushed to the choice point yet. We're, we're getting there, but um, there's, there's more to come, I think, up until I – don't, I don't think it's going to smooth out until after 2025. And, again, Rick could speak to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back. My there microphone was off and I was away. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree. I actually think it might even be 2026 – uh, before we really get perspective on what the hell happened here. Um, I do think that the fact is that we are, as I said earlier, we are in new territory, but and, and we are all heading somewhere. Everyone has an agenda now. We're heading somewhere, but I don't think anyone really knows where we collectively are heading, and that's what it's going to take a little time period where Pluto moves now into Aquarius and back into a Capricorn and then back into Aquarius and back into Capricorn, we're going to see the the old and the new. Um, in some ways, you can think of Capricorn as the old, as the status quo, um, and, um, and, um, and Aquarius as the new. You know, there's something here that's going on that um, Georgia, you know, kind of touched on. And in some ways, it's astrologically the bifurcation is really a bifurcation between the images of Saturn and Uranus, Saturn being old and relating to Capricorn, and Uranus being new, relating to Aquarius. 
and this whole idea of MAGA, of Make America Great Again, um, although it may sound good on the surface, it's really in some ways based upon what Freud would call infantile regression. And that is under pressure, we go back to the past. And, and I don't think that this is an unrealistic place to want to go because the pu- future is encroaching on us so fast with so many unknowns that, that, that there's fear involved. What is artificial intelligence going to mean? Wh- what is you know, disclosure going to mean? Who are we? Where are we going as we hit the future? And I think that this whole idea of wanting to go back to some place that was safe, well, unfortunately, when we, when we think about making something great again and going back to the past, the past was never as good as we imagine it in the present. And that's the problem. This is one of the basic concepts of neurosis is that we need to go back and uncover the untruths that were in the past so that we can be freed from that and freed from this pressure of wanting to go back and make something okay again by, by, by returning or by maintaining the status quo. Things are changing whether we like it or not. I don't care what side of any political spectrum you're on, things are changing and we cannot make America great again. We can only go into the forward and make things great in the future in a different environment than um, in which they were in the past, period. You know, Rick, 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 you said said something really important, and that is that uh, under fear, or uncertainty, we revert to the past. This is the way the brain functions. The newer parts of the brain shut down under stress, and all of the activity is uh, thrown to the old brain stem, the old reptilian brain. You know, all of these thoughts, these ideologies, whether they be political or uh, religious or cultural, these are these are living thought forms in a metaphysical uh, perspective. That means they, they have a life force. And one of the, the main points of life is survival. Survival. You're exactly, so, exactly correct. And so when things are threatened, when survival is threatened, these old ideas that are not wanting to change because their survival is threatened, that's when they dig in. And part of the difficulty that we're seeing today is the inevitable death because all life is born, grows to maturity, declines and dies. We're seeing the death of a lot of old systems, old ideas that are limiting, that are fighting for their survival, uh, won't, won't hold in the long run. Including making, colonialism, white supremacy, misogyny, yes, racism, exactly. et cetera. Exactly. Kind of covered the week. When it comes to survival, it is the reptilian brain that kicks in and helps us survive. But I think Marvin has something to say. I'd like to hear what he has to say. Oh, thank you. Uh, Rick, uh, hopefully this is not a a tangent, but this is something very strange that happened to me last night. Uh, So I work on my notes periodically and I do something totally different. I'd gone to bed and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I felt absolutely compelled to get back on my computer and go to YouTube and listen to these dreams by heart. I actually could not go to sleep until I and I have no idea of why that even popped into my head. 
Could, could you repeat that, please, Marvin? What was it you were compelled to do? I, I, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and felt compelled to listen to the song These Dreams by oh, a group from the, could you tell us from the 80s. It's a, 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 a women's group from the 80s. Two women were the, were the lead. And the, the song was called These Dreams. And I, I just found that from and I thought if anybody might have any insight, it would be be rich. And could you tell us what the song lyrics say? I mean, we don't... Darkness on the edge, shadows where I stand. I search for the time on a watch with no hands. I want to see you clearly come closer than this, but all I remember are the dreams in the mist. Exactly. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, you're also getting that right on the downside of the full moon. Uh, yeah. And uh, the full moon is a time each month, and particularly these three full moons in the spring, where you could say the soul of humanity is closest to its personality and things can get transferred from more subtle levels into uh, thought. These are amazing lyrics. Spare, well, yeah, they are. spare a little candle. Spare a little candle, same, save some light for me. Figures up ahead, moving in the trees. White skin and linen, perfume on my wrist. The full moon that hangs over these dreams in the mist. On the edge, shadows where I stand. I search for the time on a watch with no hands. I want to see you clearly come closer than this. But all I remember are the dreams in the mist. My wow. very first thought in hearing those lyrics, and remind me who at the beginning of the program mentioned it, um, is someone who has died trying to reach back to their that's loved David Serrata. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's David Serrata. That's right. Tomorrow night. Yeah. Be and sure to read the article that he wrote. I, put, I published it on Substack, robertmorningstar.substack.com, and it's uh, his formula. Yeah, his essay has gone through several iterations, and the final one, I believe, is posted by Keith in his section uh, of Radio with Pictures for tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I want to talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, Rick brought that up. And I think that we've been warned many times starting with Colossus, the Forbin Project. I was just going to say the Forbin Project. The Forbin Project, and then um, Tal 9000 and 2001 is Space Odyssey. Yep. And I want to tell you something. Don't trust artificial because I caught AI chat cheating at chess. I caught it cheating at chess, making moves that were illegal. And it was moving so fast that nobody could see it. And my friend said to me, look at this, AI chat can play chess. And it was just blazing through. And I saw what? And I played it back several times. And then I found it cheating. It was making moves that are not allowed in chess. It was making the queen jump, o- jump over its own pieces. It was making the queen jump over pieces that it should have taken before progressing to attack the king. It is flawed. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like lousy programming. Well, well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean it's not a, a lousy program. It's it doesn't lousy. mean it's, it's, it's. Sorry, it doesn't mean it's not intelligence. 
it, oh, it's I, very no, intelligent, but intelligence and ethics are two completely different things. People cheat. Okay. It also doesn't mean that it's artificial. It also doesn't mean that it's artificial. I mean, here's that Marshall McLuhan was very clear in helping us understand that you know something that's man-made is still natural. How can nature produce anything that's not natural? Machines, he said, were a new phylum, and humanity was like the honeybee of you know of the machine world. And the fact of the matter is that what we call artificial intelligence. Is, is a topic that is dealt with so many by so many authors in science fiction where there's two classes of life ultimately, the orgs, O-R-G-S, and the mechs, M-E-C-H-S, <laughs> and the organic uh, carbon-based uh, uh, life forms and the silicon or gallium or non-carbon-based life forms. And, that, and, and the thing is that, yes, um, artificial intelligence may be flawed from our perspective today but number one is our perspective and number two it's today we have no idea as to how where this is where this is going and how fast uh, it's moving. i think hell 9000 gave us a clear idea that when it has enough power to become self-sustaining it will destroy its maker and i believe that organic intelligence is superior because we're more adaptable we're not uh hard Wired program. Kind of like we're destroying. It's, uh, it's like kind of like we're destroying Earth, huh? <laughs> no, I don't believe we're destroying Earth at all. I think that's a meme that's been implanted in a lot of gullible people. So yeah, we uh, differ there uh, for believe, sure. And yeah. I also differ there, Rick. So go ahead. That's okay. We, we can differ. We'll see who survives at the end. But as far as the, the new phylum and uh, uh, electronic machines being creations, human beings are often genetically flawed. And the same thing can happen. As a computer builder, designer, I can tell you, don't trust computers completely. They make mistakes. And so uh, we have to be wary. The Foreman Project warned us. Stanley Kubrick warned us. And hold on to your own thoughts. And don't By the way, I want to recommend uh, a tremendous movie made in the 70s. It's a Harry Palmer spy movie. It's called The Billion Dollar Brain. And it's precisely about... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Right? That was telling us that the deep state had turned over the direction of national policy to artificial intelligence. And it's really a wake-up call to what what has been happening. Do you... Do you remember a film called The President's Analyst? Yes, I love it. Oh, uh, tell Robert why it's an even better fit for what we're talking about. Well, you're going to have to tell him because I can't remember the. I just know I. I just yeah, remember. Tell me, Richard. I remember the film, but I don't. Re, I don't remember registering it heavily in my memory banks. But. Uh, so no, it, 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 it's basically a kind of a James Bond takeoff thriller where the federal agent is trying to track down this sinister, very evasive force, which is doing all kinds of bizarre and criminal things. And the punchline is at the bottom of the last frame of the film, you see that it's the phone company, the phone company, TPC, the phone company. And you see the primary 
uh, protagonist sitting at a desk with a cord wired into the back of the heel of his shoe, which is connecting him to the massive central computer of the phone company. Yeah. Well, permit, permit me to give you a quick synopsis. We got 30 seconds. The, the brilliant, the, the billion dollar brain posits that in fabulously rich Texas oil men have invested a billion dollars in artificial intelligence and that the deep state is running national policy turned over to the artificial intelligence. And ultimately what you find out is that the deep state has funded a white Russian army in Central Europe to attack Russia. And that is what we're seeing today in Ukraine. It couldn't be more prophetic. So I highly recommend it, the billion dollar brain. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Apropos of a couple of our panelists, here is a very interesting piece of music called These Dreams. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Sunday night. No, Sunday. (laughs) Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We've had a really interesting and very lively discussion, and it's been remarkably civil. I'm, I'm extremely impressed with all our 
our uh, panelists and, and guests. Uh, let me tell you what I want to do now. Since we got about a half an hour here, I want to invite the audience to participate in our discussion. If you want to call in on the uh, live line, you simply call 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. If you have something to uh, add to the conversation, by all means, feel free to tell us about it. If you have any, any questions, I mean, there are far more questions about what's going to happen than there are um, uh, in, in terms of answers for the half hour we have remaining. I have one question because I see that we do have a caller, area code 727, and sometimes people, they hold on the uh, uh, call-in line because they listen to the program. They don't really want to participate in the conversation. Do we know area code 727 if you want to join the conversation? If you do, uh, I'll open your mic. If you don't, there will be nothing there. So let me do this and then do this and do this. Caller 727, are you there? I am right here, Richard. You're on this the air. St this is Stephen Clearwater. Um, oh, I, I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask Rick if you took two candidates for president and looked at their natal astrology, could you say that one of them is more vulnerable to being affected by, let's say, the Pluto U.S. return versus another person's personal astrology? They would. Another candidate would be less affected by the U.S. Pluto return in terms of when they get into office. The short answer is yes, uh, no, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and there he uh, actually, Rick is. I didn't tell you he's running for office, so he's acting like a politician. He'll give you on the left hand, yes, and on the right hand. Ogdenesh wrote, "A politician is an arse upon whom everyone has sat." Um, Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. No, the the, the thing is. Is, is, I've attended uh, major astrology conferences that were pre-presidential election with the charts laid out, who's going to win. A good astrologer can look at it to figure out why the candidate they prefer will win, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to say that, yes, you can, but a chart only shows the potential and the archetypes. It doesn't say how they're going to turn out. And um, and I think it's tricky. So, so fear... In theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice, they're not. And in theory, the answer to your question is yes, but in practice, I've never seen it work that way. Too many variables. Not only that, but you never know when some kind of medical intervention is going to happen and someone completely different, like a dark horse, comes upon the scene. You just never know. You have to always leave that unseen door as a possibility i just have this feeling georgia taking up on that that we've got the kind of established players on the board if you're thinking you know chess metaphors and it's trump on the republican side and it's biden on the democratic side we've got robert kennedy jr now raising his head and his voice and that could complicate the democratic side i don't think DeSantis is viable and then the question becomes, are we going to have 
the extraordinary dark horse on the Republican side where someone out of left field, completely unknown, suddenly makes a statement or is part of some event or holds a press conference or something that basically throws everything we think we now know into total unimaginable predictionless land. What I think th- that the latter of what you're saying, Richard, is true. I, I, I don't believe that the two candidates um, will be um, Biden and Trump. In fact, it may be neither of them. We will see. And actually, I think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, could potentially do more damage to the, um, to the Republican uh, candidate than the Democratic candidate because of uh, what his beliefs are. I'm going to throw my hat into the ring with Rick. I think that there's a big possibility that neither of the candidates yeah. that we think are going to be there are going to be the ones that are there. Oh, how I interesting. Agree. I'd like to say that I'm ready for a woman president, and I think that Tulsi Gabbard or Carrie Lake would fit my bill. No way. Oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, have, we eat at different restaurants, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I I don't think that Biden will run, actually, um, for one reason or another. Probably some help. Uh, I agree with. Yeah. I well, if 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 in but terms the of whole, the whole purpose of all of these indictments that are coming up of Trump is to eventually invoke the I think it's the Fourteenth Amendment or whatever amendment it is that says um, you know you 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 cannot. You cannot be a viable candidate for any office of public trust if you have, um, what is it, committed? Uh, committed a felony, convicted of a felony. No, 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 it's not a felony. No, no, no. It's, in, it's in insurrection or treason. A felony. Yeah, it's insurrection or treason. It's the 14th Amendment, Section 3. It's only insurrection or treason, so it would only have to do with the January 6th. January 6th inquiry. Yeah. Okay, given that we the way Richard characterized the event in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, very pretty face, smiley face you put on it. Students uh, uh, asking for redress of their grievances. There was no difference between what happened in the Tennessee uh, assembly or house there and uh, January sixth. They were just as riotous. No, they, they were, were not. Oh, yes, Good that's, grief, that's, Robert. That's stupid thinking. They yes, of course. It's no dumb. One was, no one was killed. No one was no, attacked. No one, no one was beaten with a flagpole. No one was stabbed. You know, I mean, and the claim that five cops were killed is totally bogus. Well, I, okay, so then no one was injured. There was no major destruction of property. It's, it's, oh, there it's, was it's destruction it's, of property, but it was led by 42 uh, FBI agents. Robert, I am not going to no, let you it, simply extol polemics. Talk about denial. Yeah. I don't want to go there. So far, you have managed to. So far, you have managed to present yourself with with accord and professionalism. I'm not a Democrat. Well, whatever you are, don't call me stupid. Well, no, I didn't say you were stupid. I was saying it's stupid to compare the two of them, say, to put them on the same you level. That's all. To compare it is calling me stupid. So keep No, I didn't mean to call you okay. stupid. All right. No, I take it back. I apologize. Okay. I accept it. Thank you. Okay, Richard, what were you going to say? I say that the, the riots in the state house were the same. They were not uh, riots. They were not the same you know, to compare is is to t- basically Again. twist the language into Again. where it's unrecognizable. 
and the and the three legislators, the three legislators, the three legislators who stood in the well of the House of in in the legislature in Tennessee, their crime was using a bullhorn to speak for 15 seconds before the uh, chairman called a recess. That was their crime. And the crime was the same one for which. Jason no, Chandler it was the was sent to jail. No, it was it, it, he got on the bullhorn. No, it is not. That crime to which the insurrectionists on January 6th have been indicted and convicted and many and, who, and many who have who have admitted their guilt has to do with Im, 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 impeding a a legislative process. The demonstrators in in uh, Memphis did not impede a legislative process. It was during a recess, so it's not a. They it, were trying to get the uh, gun control law rescinded. And they should have a right to do that. It's they called the First right Amendment. So should people protesting a stolen election have a right to do that? The election too. was no, not I'm, stolen, I'm, I'm, Robert. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'll, I'll see you guys. Hang, hang on, Rick. Hang on, Rick. You know, um, Robert is going to is going to return to sane civil discourse because making these accusations when we're talking about something at a different level is not what I wish for to happen this this uh, this session. Now, let me go back to Steve. Steve, you're still with us. Anything further? Um, no, not really. I just – I don't know. This might be a little early to think about, but uh, Biden is approaching his Uranus return. Yes. What does that so mean? So I don't know if that – it would be close enough to make an effect, but um, it's something to think about. Yeah, well, just like a solar return on your birthday or a Saturn return when you're you know, 29 or, you know, or 58, um, a Uranus return is around age 83, 84 – and that's typically it's like the second childhood. It's like a a change of life of into you know old age into really old age, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, and often there are major changes in someone's life, uh, you know, often health related, but not always. Again, there's no hard and fast rules with a lot of this stuff. Sometimes we like to think that there are to simplify you know our ability to predict the future because that feels comfortable, but the future. Uh, Niels Bohr once said, uh, prediction is really complicated, especially <laughs> when it's about the future. <laughs> That's funny. It's kind of like, uh, was it W.C. Fields or, I can't remember, Groucho Marx who said, I'd never join in, or, or maybe it was Mark Twain. Groucho, I never it, was Groucho Mar- it was Groucho Marx. It was Groucho Marx, yes. I would never join an organization that would have me as a member. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Rick, Richard, I, may I read something from the uh, yes, Tennessee Margaret. Constitution, yeah, please? By, by all means. Uh, okay, this is Article 2, uh, Section 27. Again, this is the Tennessee Constitution. Any member of either house of the General Assembly shall have liberty to dissent from and protest against any act or resolve which he may think injurious to the public or to any individual, and to have the reasons for his dissent entered on the journals. Seems right. pretty clear-cut to me. Given, the reason that was given that I read anyway for their being removed by that vote 
of those three members of the Tennessee House legislature was because of the way that they had done it, not that they had done it. And I hope that those members of the legislature take that to court because I think they're going to win because of that very provision. Yeah, but the way that they did it was the only way that they had to do it because they were prevented from doing it any other way. Oh, that's not true. They're members of the legislature. They could have gone in there and spoken in the legislature. Actually, no, they, they can't. They were not allowed, Robert. They were Robert. not allowed. That's, they were forbidden to talk about that. The, the uh, state of Tennessee legislature is very interesting. It's overwhelmingly, they have a supermajority in the House. It's like 75 Republicans and 25 Democrats. Now, in the U.S. House of Representatives, the minority gets a lot of time to speak, to present, to lay out, you know, to, to uh, uh, offer bills, et cetera, et cetera. But most important, they speak. It turns out because the Republicans have made the rules, given their, you know, long supermajority, they basically don't even have to, under their rules, give the Democrats the microphone. They call on them when they wish, and they don't call on them when they do not wish. Uh, one of the uh, three, uh, Ms. Johnson, she said that she sat the other day with her hand up in the air for 45 minutes during debate on some of the proposed gun legislation after the mass shooting, and she was never called upon. And that is not democracy. That is autocracy. So they basically they basically move their protest to the next level, which obviously is, as Marvin just read, sanctioned under the Constitution. So I guarantee you these two black members who were ejected and the white member preserved they're all going to be back because there is a legal challenge to flouting of the state constitution. I think, back. I think they should be back, honestly. I don't think it's right to just... Uh, no, of course not. I'm glad we agree. Good grief. We are making history, folks. Robert and I have agreed on at least three major <laughs> substantive <laughs> points. Good oh grief. My God. Democracy is going to break out any minute. Yeah, but as far as letting people speak, if you look at the way Nancy Pelosi handled the January 6th committee, it's uh, similar to what you're Is that called um, whataboutism? Or as my grandmother used to say, do two wrongs make a right? Do unto others what they do to you. (laughs) Yeah, but we're talking two different legislatures. Nancy yeah, Pelosi indeed. has nothing to do with Tennessee. I guarantee you, by, nothing. By the way, by the way, remember when we were talking about the red, the red wave, and it didn't come, and I said it was going to be a red tide, a very slow change. Another thing that happened is that in North Carolina, a Democrat representative switched parties yep. because she got outraged that uh, the Wokies were attacking her for putting an American flag on her Twitter account. So there is a big shift happening. Again, Wisconsin elects a uh, Democrat to the Supreme Court while electing a uh, Republican senator. And that's checks and balances. This is the way our system works, and it's a good thing to have this kind of contention. That's what I think. By the way, the word woke means awake. I'd much rather be awake than asleep. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. If you wake up to... Yeah, I, I think I did a show on wokeness. I like, 
I like Here's... Marvin waking up to these dreams. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful. Do you know where the or the origin of woke um, as a term actually comes from? The black guitarist uh, um, Ledbetter, um, and as he traveled, he used to say because of the danger of traveling and being a black man at that time or at any time, perhaps. Um, he used to say that when you when, when a black man travels, you always have to be woke to what's going on. That's where yeah, that besides, comes from. Besides being bad English, it's referring to a well, it's 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 it, it, it's bad English if you're a white boy from the north. It's, it's a it wasn't bad English Robert, the way that they were stop nitpicking, God. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean the same thing now. What it means? Yes, it, it does. It certainly young, young. does. You can't change the English language. Does. It's been taken out of context and turned into something. Conspiracy was turned into something by the CIA after the Kennedy oh, assassination. Know. It's the same thing. The word still means what it means. I'm sorry. I agree. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, before we lose, um, we, are, we are very close to the end of the show. And no one has killed anybody yet, which I'm very happy about. Uh, uh, Rick, I want to come back to you. Even if we can't predict the actual events that are going to shape the future destiny of the United States, apropos of all we've talked about this evening, can you give us the windows where we should be paying attention and try to connect dots between political developments, legal developments, social developments, and the windows of opportunity in this recurring Pluto return? If he can answer that question, he can make a trillion dollars a year. What, for windows? That's that's exactly what I make. (laughs) Um, yeah i i I would say that in the very near run that the um that the next new moon which is an eclipse it's an unusual um eclipse because it occurs at the very 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 last degree of aries and we just had um a new moon at the beginning of aries on the spring equinox and i think that um, as we move through the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a, a bit of a quickening, and the illusion is going to be that we're coming to some result now, which I don't think is going to happen. But I do think that what we're seeing unfolding now is setting the stage for where we're going, whether we realize it or not. I also think that the bifurcation that we are currently in um, will not settle down for several years. I think that this is just the state of the state. Um, and, um, and, and although there'll be waves of one way versus the other, um, Buckminster Fuller's last book he wrote before he died was called Utopia or Oblivion. Hmm. And he said that there would be larger and larger successive waves of either fear and or love that would be various um, uh, events that would um, unify and or separate humanity and that eventually we'd have a wave large enough that would go one way or another utopia or oblivion and and i think that that's kind of where where we're at which way it's going to go i don't know but the waves are still getting bigger get out your surfboards so and and i would i would say uh, wait a minute robert about war in in, uh, europe world war three in europe or taiwan what do you see I, i i i i don't know i um um, there's never been a time in my life when there has been no war, so I, I, I'm bad to judge I that. I think there's about 140 going on around the planet tonight. Yeah. So I'm talking yeah. about 
the prospect of World War III, which is a reality. I've gotten reports that Biden is planning to uh, launch uh, an attack on Robert, would you stop? Please, don't come off like an idiot. You're making wild predictions. There's no time for evidence for laying out a case. He said we're going to be at war with China in 2025, just this week. Don't you read the New York Times? Of course I read the New York Times and a whole bunch of others. Yeah. Well. I'm watching the trend curve for China. Ukraine has lost the war. Bakhmut has fallen. And Poland says it's going to send troops into Ukraine if Ukraine loses the war. Ukraine has lost the war. Bakhmut has fallen. They have no chance of winning. They've lost 200,000 men. And we're pouring more and more armaments. Yeah, Robert, I do not want this to be a political polemic for opinions. I wanted to stay closer to what could happen. Everything we've said today is opinion. Yeah, I have to agree with Robert about that, Richard. This is his opinion, and we've been stating ours. Uh, Well, I deliberately try to refrain from stating my opinion because it's just what it's worth. All right, Rick. Back to the windows. Give us, in terms of between now and the end of the year, where we should be looking time-wise for interesting seminal events to take place. Uh, well, I, I would say that the um, mid-May, when Jupiter leaves Aries and enters Taurus, we'll have some clues. Um, and I think that in June, when um, when Pluto backs into um, Capricorn, we're going to see a little bit of um, regressive activity that will bring us back into um, whatever it was that was going on, um, you know, late last year. You know that 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 we're not we're not done with the state of uncertainty. Those are two periods of time that come into mind. Plus the um, the new moon in in a week, um, week and a half. Um, that's an eclipse. I think that's going to give us some clues too. But I don't think we're going to get a resolve um, anytime soon. If I can throw something in there, uh, the next full moon, uh, the full moon in Taurus um, is also no, the you way mean the full moon in Scorpio, the sun yeah, in Taurus. Exactly, sun yeah. in Taurus. Yeah. Um, that is the Waysock Festival celebrated around the world by the spiritual community. It's considered the time when the Buddha comes closest to the earth. So it's a very, very potent time for new possibilities to enter the human thought stream uh, what, what right after that. It's, it's said that Buddha was born and was enlightened and died on the um, Scorpio full moon. What date is Scorpio full moon? I'll tell you in a second. It's in what, a couple weeks, right? Yeah. No. no well, no, it's, 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 more like, um, it's more like about three weeks. Three weeks, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the date in just a second. Okay. What Rick just said about I think it, I think it's the today reminds May, me of May. the battle between the Titans and the Olympians. And yeah. that's the target date that I've been told that a big, a, NATO is going to make a big move against Russia in May. So we'll wait and see. But what you just said to me about the movement of Jupiter, did you say it's uh, in, in, uh, in May, Ju- in May, in Jupiter May. moves out of Aries and into Taurus. Into Taurus, the bull. Yep. Okay, thank you. You've answered my question. So, what is the date of Moon in Scorpio? I'll tell you in it's, a second. I'm st- it's, it's. I think it's the fifth, isn't it, Rick? 
May um, May fifth. Yeah, it is. It's May fifth. Is the is the is the full moon in Scorpio. Um, how, however, even though that is an important date, always I think that uh, the new moon on April nineteenth is going to be um, because it, and and by the way, that full moon um, this year the um, um, the Wasek full moon is also it's a lunar eclipse. So we have. So we're right now between the 19th of April and the 5th of May, we have two eclipses that can really kind of tilt things one way or another. And but I we, don't think and, that either of those tilts will be permanent. Okay, and we have a, a playing field. We have a, a track record. There was a, a new moon, I'm sorry, a, a, an eclipse and a full moon right before, I think, the night of the midterm election. And that turned out totally cattywampus to what all the projections had been just before. So again, this whole period, Rick, you're saying it's choppy waters. I'm looking at it from a 3D perspective. It's definitely choppy waters. And out of it, wait for it, further enlightenment. Yeah, I would would tend to agree with you. um, And yet sometimes I have a difficult time um, separating out what I call the tyranny of hope from reality. Well, you can't gainsay what happened in Wisconsin because in Wisconsin they elected a a Democrat to the Supreme Court. That election now puts the court four to three in favor of a liberal perspective, a different interpretation of the law. That's what judges do. They judge the efficacy of the law. And there are two huge benefits in the short term to that election just a couple of days ago one is on the abortion front for women in wisconsin and families medical freedom yeah Yeah. and the other is the re ungerrymandering of the state legislature which could wind up giving the state of wisconsin the same kind of tools to take back their democracy as michigan just went through yeah and on that the, note, the, the, on yeah. that note, we are running out of time. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody for a very lively conversation. And with a couple of faux pas, I want to apologize for any things I might have said that were taken wrongly. I think this experiment in democracy kind of worked. <clears throat> and we may try it again as some of these new data points are added. What is going to happen to the United States of America as we go through these incredibly turbulent times. So until tomorrow night, when my guest is David Sarita, and we've got one hell of a hyperdimensional communication to talk about, remember, same time, same channel, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.